0: The vineyard always has to come first and those decisions in the winery are always second to what the vineyard is hopefully telling you.
1: Welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, arguably one of the most unpretentious and finest podcasts ever produced about wine and other drinks. Here, we take deep dives via casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermentative beverages. I'm your host, Daniel Honan. You know, interestingly, at least for me anyway, the Fermenting Place podcast's biggest audience outside of Australia comes from the United States, followed by Canada, then New Zealand. We also have folks tuning in from the uk france and denmark singapore norway sweden ecuador italy russia the netherlands germany and timor that's awesome thanks for listening in from wherever in the world you are i hope you're doing well and getting some insight some entertainment and value out of the fermenting place podcast actually while i think of it if you are enjoying any of the episodes of the fermenting place podcast you might like to exchange a little value for value and put up a little something to show your support. There are many ways you can sign up and become a Patreon subscriber where you'll get new episodes before anyone else, as well as that fresh feeling that comes with knowing that you're supporting ground-up, listener-led content creation with no ads whatsoever. Otherwise, you can make a one-off donation to the Fermenting Place podcast via PayPal or send a few sats my way, if you know what sats are. And if you don't, and I would seriously encourage you to find out. Seriously, this is absolutely not investment advice, but buy Bitcoin. Log on to fermentingplace.com for more info on ways you can support the show proper and enable the production of quality ground-up listener-led content creation, such as the Fermenting Place podcast. At the very least... Do me a solid and click that subscribe button, like, share, or leave a comment so that more and more people can grow their know about how fermentative beverages like wine and other drinks are inextricably influenced by and emergent from the unique environmental and cultural circumstances of a particular place. It is an immense help if you do. Okay, episode 12. This episode is brought to you by the legends over on Patreon who believe in the show enough to support its sustainability by trading a little bit of their hard-earned fiat for this quality content. My guest for episode 12 of the Fermenting Place podcast is fledgling legend of the Hunter Valley, Angus Vinden from Vinden Headcase Wines. Angus is a young wine grower in an old wine region. Thoughtful, mindful, and hardworking, Angus has been busy building his wine brand off the back of his family's legacy for the last five years or so. He puts a firm focus on farming first, viticulture, then winemaking, hence the term wine grower. He's a hunter boy too, same as me, so what's not to love? He makes deliciously good wine with an eye on the past and a mind for the future. In episode 12 of the Fermenting Place podcast, Angus and I discuss being a young wine grower in an old wine region, the legacy of experimentation, putting the vineyard first, hunter gamay, the importance of time, breathing in deep and... Positives of a year like 2020. So, with intros and overtures aside, please listen, like, share, subscribe, and enjoy. Episode 12 of the Fermenting Place podcast featuring Angus Vinden of Vinden Headcase Wines. We're sitting at the back of uh, Angus Vinden's wine shed yeah the winery's just next door this is the wine shed this is where you store the wine right no all the vineyard stuff yeah exactly yeah yeah cool cool and uh we're sitting in the hunter valley it's a beautiful sunny day and uh looking out over at uh, at your vineyard here which is planted with alicante
0: uh the front block there is gamay right in front of us gamay. and then we've got alicante to the right uh, a little bit of mevedra up the hill with some more alicante at the back uh, with some old vine Shiraz and then we've also got some Pinot Noir, Pinot Munia, and Cinso going in the ground this year
1: The last time I was out here you were getting all excited about Gamay and uh, It's potential for the hunter, you know, it's 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 a pretty thin sk- skinned variety akin to I guess Pinot, um, but You've got some cuttings from loggerheads, which is Len Evans old property just down the road here yeah exactly so i went over and took the cuttings
0: um with permission um this time (laughs) with permission (laughs) and then uh i subsequently got two other clones um from south australia They're strange numbers i can't remember them but uh essentially we've got three different clones all interplanted and they're all on their own roots which are pretty cool
1: what makes you so excited to plant gummy
0: i mean i think it's a variety that's not only suited to the hunter but in terms of its, its moisture to Australian wine. I think we as a nation have always sort of looked towards styles of wine which sort of necessitated or had to be aged for uh, some reason. And I think when you look at the pretentious nature of what wine once was, it was always things that had to be laid down, put in the cellar, drunk at this perfect moment. Mm-hmm. Where I like the idea that wine can be that. And I like, think I make a few wines that definitely embody that um, ethos and philosophy, but when you look at wine in a modern context, it's bought drunk, and you could, most of those wines are probably drunk too soon, so I think, well, why not think about um, building weight, complexity, interest into styles of wine which are designed to be drunk now, and so for me, the Hunter, at its best, produces light to medium-bodied right. styles of Shiraz, so we're in the perfect climate to make some light, medium-bodied reds, and Gamay is so fun, like when you, you go to Beaujolais, it's yeah. a party town, it's which they get traditionally wines are bottled in six weeks like i'm yeah. pushing four months so i'm not that far off but i think the wines which you can serve chilled on a summer's day um you can still fill them with so much complexity yeah. um but at the same time they're fun they're light they're smashable uh, yeah. they're drinkable i like, trying to figure as many adjectives as you can the poolside the yeah. park wines the beach wines the yeah. pizza and pasta like it's Super drinkable, they're high on the quaffability index. Like But they so can many. also
1: be super complex too. That's exactly. the thing. So, you know, it it sort of has a foot in both camps. You can you can smash these bottles, no problem at all. Low alcohol, low ish alcohol, um, super fun and finesse. But then by the same token, you can have this really beautiful complexity out of a gamay that just kind of blows your mind and you're like, Whoa, this is this is actually this is serious wine. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so that for me, I think the idea is that you can build so much interest in, and sort of complexity in these bottles, but still essentially maintaining the, the fact that you want to just have another glass, open another bottle, and when it's 40 degrees in the middle of summer, you can still go, I actually feel like a glass of red wine. And yeah. in the Hunter, it's get up to 45 degrees here. Like, so I think with that in, in mind, I think you have to make wines so that you want to drink in the place where you're growing the grapes, let alone in other places around Australia or the world for that matter.
1: Well, that's right. Like, the, the context of the Hunter here, it, it and, and in Australia more generally, it totally makes sense to have a lighter style of red, or white, whatever, but red in this instance. Um, you know, it, it sort of blows my mind that for a long, long while there, it was all about the big heavy hitters, you know, the 15 16% alcohol, you know. And I guess that would have, you know, as I was saying to uh, Andrew Thomas the other day, if it's 1988 and you've got a nice thing of stroganoff on the boil or something like that yeah that's the move man but otherwise that refreshment particularly when it's peak of summer maybe you're at the beach maybe you you know in the park or something like that you just want something easily drinkable full of freshness and acidity and vibrancy and something that actually is going to refresh you when you drink it exactly i
0: mean even if you look at tomo's wines the wines that he made in early 2000s through mid 2000s more Parker-esque. Yeah, I think he's pulled his winemaking back yeah. a lot more in line with that sort of regional style which I think I think is what the Hunter needs to be doing to maintain its relevancy as a, its single typicity is that make wines that really embody what we are as a place. Yeah. Um, right. And that for me, when you look back at O'Shea and all the famous wines that people still want to drink from the 60s and 80s, right. those old Lindys, they're not 16% alcohol, they're, they're not, not 100% peeing. New Oak, they're High, uh, a pretty softer acid to pick early well, with high 65 natural acid. The
1: Lindy's about 14.5 actually yeah. I'm pretty sure but um, the interesting thing is Gamay and the Hunter Valley don't necessarily go in the same sentence or you don't generally hear I'm going up to the Hunter Valley to drink Gamay or this is a Gamay from the Hunter Valley yeah. you know I know Tyrell's, uh released a Gamay a couple of years ago um, from those cuttings at Luggerheads in fact it was I think it was fruit from Luggerheads but exactly yeah um, the fact of the matter is, oldest wine region in Australia, renowned for beautiful medium bodied stra, yeah. uh Pinot's that, you know, are certainly on the on the say less refined side compared to so Burgundy, but it can get there if you pick it on acidity and and get that freshness in there. And then Gamay kind of sits in, in that in that middle area where it's it's just hitting all those straps, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's exactly right. And what I mean sort of essentially by those lindies is that they
0: are medium-bodied. They weren't sort of really big, soupy, extractive styles. And I think Gamay lends itself to that style of winemaking. More whole berry, i.e. just a stemmed or a little bit of bunch work. Cooler ferments with a shorter time on skins, but just less extractive winemaking. Um, and I think that it lends itself to a really light, bright, fresh fruit forward style, which you can still have some nuances of, of Lee's work or bunch and complexity. So they are so fun and bright.
1: So, when did you plant this gamay that's just before us here?
0: So, there's sort of been three different plantings over the last three years. So, it's all interplanted. Uh, So, I mean, I essentially made most of the cuttings myself. So, but planting callous cuttings in the middle of a drought is somewhat of an (laughs) uphill struggle. (laughs) Um, So, the block's essentially been planted twice, but we're slowly getting through there and filling it up. I've just actually put in more posts here to... I've got about another thousand cuttings in the bed uh, to go in later this... later this year.
1: So have you made wine off of that yet?
0: Uh, Twice. Twice. Uh, We've both been blends. Um, So the first year I did a Pinot Noir, Pinot Minier Gamay uh, Mm Coferment, which we just made at Magnums. So we just had one barrel, which was pretty fun. Um, This year we did a Shiraz Gamay. So uh, Coferment, the Shiraz is off Somerset. Um, So 50-year-old vines, that was... and uh, So the wine was 80%, Shiraz, 20% Gamay. So again, Coferment, 10%, whole bunch. In the ferment, everything else just stemmed Four days on skins. While fermented, just gently hand plunged one to two times a day. Beautiful. And then into oak, sand sulfur for four months. Racked off leaves, no fining, no filtration. And sulfur to bottle. So All the hits. Super fun, super
1: crunchy. and Yeah, from 2020. So So you're a, a young winemaker in the Hunter. You're a young winemaker in an old wine region. Definitely. And... um you know, the reputation that the Hunter has is uh, because of its, I guess, longevity, is that it's a little traditional, perhaps a little stuffy. Stoic is probably the stoic word I like to describe is the reason that. Stoic. Um, but that seems to be changing over the last few years. Yeah. For me, I think
0: it all comes back to, I uh, in the Hunter, it is very traditional, I guess, as a talking point, particularly its reputation. But when you go back to, I don't know if you've read yeah. the wine hunter that Campbell wrote about O'Shea. Mm-hmm. It's the birthplace of experimentation in a lot of ways in Australian wine. When you look, we only made essentially fortifieds up until the 30s. Mm-hmm. O'Shea comes back to Australia and starts redefining how Australians make tab wine. That happened in the Hunter. Don't forget that we started basically with, obviously there are other parts of Australia doing this. Right. I look at that as going, that's experimentation. That's traveling, finding wines that you love to drink, coming back and reshaping Australian wine. So for me, the hunter is sort of the birthplace of experimentation. We started and then we sort of kept pushing in one direction, which isn't a bad thing. But I think you should always look back to look forward. And I think for me, that is a big um, thing for me. Like, particularly when you go back and read a lot of literature mm. about plantings, like There were thousands of varieties, or well not thousands, hundreds of varieties planted here. There was since we planted here in the 1830s. Yeah, um, amazing. You go back and read those things, like, there were things here, maybe they didn't work, or maybe they, they didn't have the farming techniques to make them work, or the wine styles were essentially fortified, so some of those lighter varieties didn't lend themselves to being fortified. Mm-hmm. So I think there's so much being done here. So I think looking back to that, going, oh, that could be interesting. Let's have a bit of fun there and planting new varieties and doing new things. I think yeah, I think it's so important that we do keep challenging what we do continually, as otherwise I think you become complacent. Sure. And you make lazy wines, and I'm not saying that we make lazy wines, but in the sense that I think it's really important to you know, look back at that place of where we started and yeah. keep going, there are, there are other things we can do.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. You've got that eye on the future, as I said, you know, a young fellow in uh, an old wine region, It's it's um, you're not actually not alone. There's there's more of you and more of you cropping up all the time. Um, no, definitely. You know, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but... Yeah, I uh, think, yeah, definitely at the moment. I mean, five years ago it was different, I think, when I released my first one.
0: Richie was just starting, Usher was just starting, um, James Becker. Um, so I think we're probably the four guys who probably pushed that sort of regional sort of style a bit more um, yeah. over the last few years. And then there's a few other labels coming through now, obviously, Comments & Co., um, Ash Warner just over yeah, the cellar door. Yeah. Um, and I think there'll be another swarm of winemakers over the coming decade uh, which will start their own labels.
1: It's like a resurgence again and, and you see those waves in history. Uh, it, it's sort of ebbing and flowing over time. Um, which is what I wanted to talk about which time and it's such an esoteric concept or it can be an esoteric concept. Um, but before we sort of dive into that, I guess for our listeners, you know, We're speaking to Angus Vinden of Vinden Wines, the head case. And uh, can you give us a brief history in terms of how you got to be in wine, how we got to this moment now talking? um, My
0: parents bought the property in uh, sort of the summer of 89, 90 when I was born. Um, So I grew up spending weekends here as mum and dad sort of started uh, playing in the house and then we moved up here when I was four. So my earliest memories are sort of uh, literally down in the vineyard planting trees, um, lots, of little pe- lots of little things just all over the vineyard. Mm-hmm. So I started sort of oh, so making wine, I probably being more of a hindrance than anything in the shed with Dad when I was seven. Yeah. Um, we'd help jump in and dig out the fermenters. as Dad always had a bad back, Help pressing off. And I think from there it sort of went, at the age of 15 on school holidays, like Dad would be like, oh, I've got a meeting, can you press off the Shiraz? And I'm like, I can't do that. He'd be like, you'll be <laughs> fine, you've done it 20 times. So it sort of went from that and then... Straight in the deep end. Straight in the deep end, yeah. Um, so always potting around, doing little barrel work and things like that over the years. Um, wow. And then, dad, because it was always a hobby farm for them. We didn't make a lot of wine. Um, dad and dad never made any money out of it. Um, so he sort of never encouraged me to be wi- to be to be a winemaker. Mm-hmm. So I actually, pretty discouraged it in a larger sense. So. Uh, I was always quite creative and loved design and building, so I went to uni and did uh, seven years of architecture. Um, I was working in a firm uh, for a while, and I think it was sort of, I was also still working out here in the vineyards, at, me- being mentored by Glenn Howard, a famous grower from mm-hmm. Somerset. I was working there sort of full time, and then I think while I was doing my masters working for Glenn. I was also doing viticulture. I still don't know how I found time and day to even go to the pub with the mm-hmm. boys, but I think I was, I don't know. Had more energy back then. but <laughs> um, So I reached a point where, I don't know, in about 2015 I was making my wines. So I'd finished up with Glen. I was sort of here working a couple of days a week as an architect. And then I essentially just, one morning I was like, I want to be outside. I want to be in the vineyard. And that's where I grew up. That's where I belong. So it was sort of that moment. I went, yep, let's do this. And it went sort of crazy from there.
1: You couldn't escape that that thing. I guess it's technically... Know, it's, it's it's been such a, a massive part of your life, even though perhaps it was framed as a hobby. Uh, it's still this thing that's just gotten to your bones, into your blood. And
0: oh, definitely. I think the way Dad used to describe Pinot um, from Burgundy, um, I never really got it. And I was over in Burgundy, and I was a young uni student. I think halfway through my first degree, and that was like one of those light bulb moments. I was mm-hmm. sitting uh, in a Lox Corton drinking a bottle of O1 Corton Brechonnage. I'm probably saying it wrong. My French is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was an amazing Grand Coup Pinot, and I remember having it, then I drank two other bottles of wine after that. But I called Mum and Dad. I absolutely pissed um, about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I said, Dad, I get it. Um, it was sort of that was the moment where you have one of those wines that you go, yeah, that's what it's all about. And it's not my uh, desire to make Pinot like Burgundy, but it's more that... When you find a wine, it just really connects with you. I think it's quite amazing. Um, Absolutely.
1: I was speaking uh, with Andrew Jefford about this very thing uh, a few weeks ago, you know, in terms of the, the, the capacity for wine to astonish you, to sort of just halt time for a moment and uh, I don't know, capture, just it's sort of like create a whole new file in your brain Uh, like a whole new um, synapse just flashes off and these neurons just reconnect or or connect with one another and your entire mind gets changed almost in an instant where you just think, yeah, screw whatever it was I was doing before. I'm going to go and do this now. Yeah, it's almost like the right and left side of your brain joined for a moment and go, just have pure,
0: complete concentration on that and just sort of almost like starstruck. You're sort of in awe of going... Wow, it's, I didn't think anything could taste this good.
1: H- how could a how can this liquid in my glass, fairly innocuous liquid hmm. be doing these things to my mind right now and, and to my being. It's it's pretty incredible. I had an amazing Shannon Blanc the other night, La Lune. It was just unbelievable. I
0: just I opened it. Uh mates literally sa- saw it on like Instagram at a bottle shop. He's was like you have to go buy that. Like it's got a unicorn. You'll never find it again. And when I opened it, I was like, "Oh, well, under a cork, sand sulfur, and I go, Oh, this would go two ways. I open it. I was just like
1: Fuck. Magic.
0: This this is like half an hour like just amazing. Just relaxing. You want to
1: keep it in the glass. You don't want to drink it because you mm. don't want it to be gone. So you want to just keep coming back. And I guess smelling it, just just smelling it is my favorite thing is is when the wine is so aromatically intoxicating, you just mm. think I don't ever like it it's like trying to capture that moment and extend it throughout the course of a meal or whatever the situation is. I've been at wine festivals where you just walk around for f- half an hour, 40 minutes with just a one wine in your glass because that little sample that you've got is just so incredible. You don't want to you don't want it to be gone. You just want to hold on to it and keep smelling it and tasting it. And
0: no, exactly right. And I think that's what Oh, I'd hope every winemaker seeks to achieve those sort of beautiful moments where you go, oh, I think I got it right this year. And we, you seek that every year, but it's only when, obviously, season, the decisions you make and everything to do with maturation all comes together that mm. you always get those moments of brilliance. Um, I think that's what we all seek for every year, but I guess that's the best thing that makes every season different, that you can't make the wine the same, and every year you make little decisions slightly different to hopefully um, make something that... Gives you that sort of little, I don't know, tinkle in
1: your eye or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, it's elusive. Like it's so elusive.
0: Most definitely, because you can never do it again.
1: No, so. and not every bottle does it, and not every vintage perhaps gives you the moment to do it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's just this um, confluence of time and place and um, decision making, I suppose, and. I guess one of the cool things is now that you're, uh, or, or you're on the other side of, you're creating these wines, and I guess every now and again you might get an email sent, or they might be tagged in an Instagram or, or, or a tweet or something, uh, and and you've caused that similar moment for somebody else, and the reason that that's occurring for them is because of you. Yeah, i never actually really thought about that
0: like that, because uh, I'd always thought about the people who made my wine. So, but. I mean. I guess that's actually quite a beautiful thought. That hopefully I've uh, made someone else fall in love with wine. Maybe that's yeah. what you should
1: always seek and strive to do. Well, it's entirely possible. I always think about it in terms of music. Like when you you can put on a record, you can you can chuck a, an album on Spotify or something, and it's a, you know it's a pretty um, easy and simple thing to do. But uh, maybe every now and again you chuck on that song, or maybe it's a it's an old familiar record that you used to smash when you're a teenager or something. And like the, the people that created that music have no idea that you're listening to it right now, losing your mind while you're driving your car or, you know, turning it up super loud in your in your kitchen or whatever it is that you're cooking dinner. But that's got to be the moment, right? That's got to be the purpose. That's got to be the reason for the creative pursuit is just, you know, anonymously creating just um, incredibly special moments for people uh, without necessarily getting the, the plaudits or the thanks, but just being... There's that wine. It's open on that table. People next morning they throw it in the bin. They're like, "Fuck, how good was that?" Yeah, so I'm not gonna put
0: that bottle in the bin. I'm gonna put it on my shelf. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. Like I collect all my bottles that I love.
0: Like whether it could be for too, I love yeah. the the design of the label. Um, it's got a really cool cork. Um, like oh, the printing on the cork, or uh-huh. just had a special connection, or even if it wasn't the perfect bottle of wine, it was an amazing memory that we had that night. Yeah. Um, so we have – I've got a wall in the cellar door. We just put all those memories up there. You can flick through them and most of the time I can tell you who I drunk it with and almost – I can always tell you, yeah, who was drunk with and what we had. Most of the time I can't tell you what we were eating. Um, it's little it's, time capsules. Yeah, like little time capsules and all about memory to do with that like point of
1: conversation. I wanted to, to to touch on your time, your brief, your relatively brief time here in the Hunter and some of the people that made an impression on you um, in the Valley – one of them has to be Glenn Howard, recently passed away, unfortunately. Yeah, Glenn was
0: definitely the biggest impression um, for me. Not so much in terms of wine or wine making, but he sort of instilled, I mean, he sold fruit to Lindy's for mm. 20 or 30 years, so those comments and the w- way we pick grapes and grew, or he used to grow grapes for them, are all embedded within some of the wines and wine styles which I make today. Yeah. Sort of a deep love of the soil, the land, and I don't know, he grew up with his father tending that soil and... Um, that vineyard's beautifully manicured and Incredible looked after. Vineyard, Somerset. Um, yeah. Actually, we leased it as a guest today. So did you? Yeah, which is very you got cool. skin
1: in the game.
0: Right? Yeah. So um awesome. Looking after ourselves now, so which is cool. Taking um, the risk. So, um, essentially, for me, I mean, Glenn is sort of I don't know, really embedded with got under my skin. and nails. That I, we are. From, I'm from the hunter. You're from the hunter. This is what we do these are the greats, the, we put our love and energy into these things and they will hence respond in the winery. Yeah. But we make wines from our region, we don't bring things in out of area. You don't see people making Bordeaux and Burgundy. Why for some reason in the Hunter Valley, we seem to make every other region's wine apart from our own. Sort of, I don't know, for me, I never understood. Um, I think oh, when you look at challenging vintages, make different styles of wine. And I think that's where growing up with a grower is that I've seen winemakers turn their nose up at perfect fruit yeah. that I then took in the winery and we got some ridiculously ratings for fruit that was ter- people had turned their nose up at. So I look at that going, well, you should need to I don't know, look at our place and region, make wine styles that are suited to those climates and those vintage and variations. And I don't know, it is a challenging place to grow grapes, but I mean, we've got our fruit off every year for the last six years when a lot of people haven't got fruit off. And I think... It's a testament to how growing this grape, spending more time in the vineyard, we we can hopefully get them off every year, regardless. But be proud of where we are. This is our place, our soil. I mean, look after it, and I think the the wines in the winery respond beautifully. So,
1: well, it's it's that adapt or die thing. And I guess there's a wider context at play. You know, perhaps back in the day when winemakers would say refuse fruit, or maybe it was too wet, or whatever, Um because there, there's I, I, I'm hazarding an edu- it's an educated guess but there was con- there was that concept of consistency you know um, the consumer at the end of the line wanted the wine relatively the same as it was the year before and the year before that and the year before that and if you couldn't achieve consistency like as if you were sort of making a bottle of gin right or or some vodka or, or beer most definitely you know um and uh, and so you refuse the fruit because, I don't know, it, it's not up to the to the standard. Um, and, you know, everyone's got a business model. Everyone's got a, a, a way of being. But um, as you just said, there's opportunity then for someone like you to be like, well, I'll take it and I'll do something with it. And then you look what happened in the last – with the head case stuff, you know, you've gone from strength to strength in terms of ratings – for Holiday and a whole bunch of other things, and just just the general reception that that, that your customers give you, like this, that it's shifted. Like, the consumer's way more informed in terms of what they're drinking. Most definitely, and I think
0: every year, reveling in those variations is what's actually more interesting. I think, I mean, I think there's just as much skill in a one million liter tank of Jacobs Creek being able to taste the same every year. Like, sure. I take my hat off Absolutely. to that. There's that so much skill in that, but. We're dealing with 50 acres, 100 tons of fruit each year. Mm. It's not mass production. No. Um, it's just as much work, probably. Because <laughs> our equipment's a lot smaller. But I you know the fact that fruit is different. It makes you make completely different wines. That it, there is ideally meant to be consistency within style. But 18, I look, it's balanced. It's like 65. You've got higher alcohols, but mm. you have high acids. So we could leave them out longer. 19 you have different things. So we um, had a lot less acid. So I think all those little things are so interesting. And so the wines that at least I made in those years reflected those decisions based around the growing. And I think that's where, for me, being qualified as a viticulturalist, not as a winemaker, yeah. I put, you know, vineyard always has to come first and those decisions in the winery are always second to
1: what the vineyard is hopefully telling you. Uh, so how are you thinking about site in that respect? Because if if that is i mean you know this is the fermenting place podcast it's it's essentially about sight and place and um articulating place or expressing place through a beverage whether that be wine or beer or coffee um or gin or spirits whiskey whatever you know um how do you think about sight you know r- relatively uh youthful in terms of your your making of the wines in the hunter and uh, making wines in general but um how you how have you uh mentally mapped out the Hunter Valley, what it does to grape growing, what it does to um, wines, how it expresses itself in not just your wines, but like other people's wines as well.
0: I don't know. I guess I'll speak for me first, for I take a larger regional uh, viewpoint, but I mean, I only deal with two sites now. We used to have more. So for me, it's the idea of focusing down on those two places and right. discovering the nuances of those things. I don't know. In 16... Started an idea of taking a single barrel out of the winery and looking at that little block. So every block at Somerset is vinified separately. Nothing centrally is ever blended till right before bottling. And a lot of those times, I'll even separate aspects. I'll so we'll take the east aspect, which is three blocks. The northern aspect, which is three blocks planted in '68. The west is '70. So I'll vinify those separately, and then we make one wine, which is a blend, which is a balance of the site. Then actually knuckling down and going, well, the eastern block has more red fruits because it sees less afternoon sun. So but bottle of that, the northern block sees with a different aspect, has different sort of um, sunlight, seeing more balance of um, morning and afternoon. Mm-hmm. The western sun, even the soil, they're slightly different. is slightly more baked. Um, it'll be more orange than the bright red. Um, so that sort of has more blue fruit. So I think the idea of mm-hmm. really understanding sight can come through, through winemaking. So... I mean, in the winery at the moment, we're quite empty. We've just finished bottling and didn't make any serious wines um, this year um, with sort of mitigating circumstances, so to speak, but I guess that's can be Everything another blanketed conversation. blanketed in smoke, not exactly, necessarily yeah. on
1: fire, but blanketed in smoke. I yeah. mean, uh, touching on that just for a moment, you know, they got uh, – 2020, you know, it, it's been a shit of a year, but uh, it was drought and then the fires, even though there was no direct um, impact from fires, it, the smoke was hanging around since October through basically the end of vintage, maybe a little bit beyond, but, um, you know, there's still some decent wines coming out of this, this place. Yeah. We made, uh,
0: 10, 15 wines this year, probably down from 25. So, uh, we had a lot of fun. It made me rethink about Somerset to sort of keep that site conversation going. Is that trying to understand that site more? We still, Took the same approach to all those winemaking, but we made a different, made a, a large number of different decisions around when we were picking. So, taking some basic knowledge that the, the phenols bind to sugar, um, so glucose and fructose, we started picking earlier. It's in the skins of the grapes, so we didn't um, crush a single berry in the winery. Everything was 100% whole berry. So really short time on skins. We left some things on skins for two days, other things on skins for four days. So we did a lot of experimentation within the vintage itself, trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with this. So everything was fermented quite cold. Again, really unextractive. So you just got really bright red fruit. Um, and I think the only thing that looks tainted, and I have two barrels which won't be bottled, um, is the thing I fermented a bit warmer and left on skins. It looks horrible. Like I would not even... Um, you know, we're going to distill it and Make a little p- collaboration with a new distillery um, We don't want to waste the fruit no. um, But I think those decisions that we made Around picking and that site Understanding that, well, that We can pick this block a little bit earlier uh, Because we know it's always still, still Flavour right there After dealing with it for now almost a decade ago I know after about eleven and a half and May We can got natural flavour within that mm-hmm. block Great natural acidity So we didn't acidify any of the reds this year so mm. you've got bright red fruited wines that I mean, and they put us is the wine smoky like there's course there's gonna be some level of taint in every wine this year. Sure. But whether it's at a level of tolerance that it's overwhelming the wine, yeah, or built into the wine so that's everything is was made as a drink now. So we've already sold out four wines from twenty. Um, unbelievable. So and fifth one's probably about to go very soon. So I think looking at that site and the wine styles that we made from that vintage, I think this year presented me a lot of different things. So like we have made some whites on skins. Like, let's just fuck it. Let's see what happens. Like, yeah. well, what's the option we're going to put in, leave it on the vine. Like Glenn and his family have, I don't know, for me, there's a larger moral conversation there. We sat down uh, over dinner and he was not only mental, but a good friend. We'd have dinner every, almost once a month mm-hmm. and we're, all right, well, let's have a go. If we can't make the wine, we'll, we we can not bottle the wine, so to speak, we'll have a conversation, but. To me, you've already got low yields, so half the issue is being dealt with. Um, right. You've got basically no income, so you need to grow grapes the next year for me. So let's have a go, let's pick it. I'll pay you for the fruit, for what we get off regardless, and let's just think about it completely differently.
1: This is the thing. There's that, that economic factor that, that always creeps into the um, decision-making process. It has to, right? Because people Most are going to eat, right? Um, but that aside to bask in the in, in in the in the opportunity to learn what mother nature's giving you she's serving up this year for yeah. you
0: it was it was a pretty ugly plate so it's a pretty <laughs>
1: goddamn ugly plate um but you got let's say how old are you i'm uh, 30 30 okay <laughs> sorry but let's say you put up another 30 vintages you're 60 a chef would put up you know 60 100 200 plates a night. Exactly right. Uh, and, and each time they get that opportunity to refine and you know, move it somewhere else or you know, muck around with w- whatever's going on. Far more than, than a winemaker can. And, and, and when you do approach a vintage like 2020 where it, it, it's just a goddamn shit show, you know, and, and you're just like, that's a whole nother year. You get to, to you have to wait in order to see do the things that you perhaps had in mind before you're approaching the vintage but also on the other side of it you've learnt and and you've you've gained so much more experience than you wouldn't have normally and so it hurts economically but if you can get past that and also get past the psychological disruptions i suppose as well it's stressful and all those things yeah we end up putting making one white had nine
0: different ferments in it there you go uh, we did I had Gewurztraminer five ways in the winery. Like, who, do, who does Gewurztraminer let alone five ways? <laughs> it was sort of, we said stuff on skin, stuff in amphora, things in barrel, solids in tank, uh, like fine juice. Um, one wine became, the, I guess, the, the beautiful bitzer of the vintage. So <laughs> we had five ferments, five three Semions and a Vardello. It's sort of inspired by Bandol block, my favorite place, yeah. um, for rosé and sort of lovely white. So I said, well, let's do something like that. Well, this is the second vintage, but that became uh, the conduit for all those experiments into right. one parcel. So it's sort of, I think, I don't know, thinking about things or having the ability to I don't know, obviously have some free reign being at my business, um, I can take that gamble and punt. But we bottled four of those experiments by themselves um, yeah. from 20. Yeah. Um, and I think those things taught me a lot. Um, even the Nouveau has about four or five different ferments in it. And that's just a, $30 smashable bottle of wine, which, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that was the one Yeah, we took fruit and picked it. Sorry, we picked fruit and fermented it, it's just whole berries for two days on skins. So I literally pressed it off at 10.9 Bome and then fermented in an open fermenter like like pumpkin soup. It was just like bright red, um, sort of more beetroot, but there's like literally stirring it. Yeah. Um, so it didn't become reductive and it was still oxidizing while it was fermenting. Then we basically racked it off the leaves and put it in barrels. barrel. So I was like, I would never ever done anything weird like that before. But no. I was like, well, if it's going to be taintless get it off. And then we did pick, press things like seven and eight by May. And all those wines which we pressed off and got off skins quite quickly all, all taste really bright and fresh.
1: Yeah. Necessity, mother of invention, right? Yeah. It's, you know, in a way, your hand has been forced exactly. to adapt or die, basically.
0: Yeah. And these are things that I think I'll actually carry through into... Future vintage, going far out. This is really bright. This is worked last time. This is really crunchy. Like let's do that again. Maybe not for the whole wine, but those three barrels that were really bright, which gave this amazing sort of red fruited aromatic freshness. I love that in 20. It cut through the smoke if it's there. Uh I was like, that's that's great. Let's do that again in 2021.
1: And in time, again, yeah. So so those techniques that you 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 learnt or stumbled upon or discovered or, or even made up, you know, we'll pay dividends again and again in the future where maybe you get, a, a you know, a 2014 where it was a pretty cruisy vintage and, um, and you can apply some of those techniques to amplify some of the wines that, that you would make ordinarily and, and think, wow, you know. Most
0: definitely. Like, I mean, I look at the way I started making Sermillon, what six vintages ago. The way you make the Vindance Semion doesn't exist anymore. How we make the head case, Semyon, is initially in those first couple of years is now what the Vinnin's become and the head case keeps changing and there's no longer one component, there's five picks of the block. As now we've got down to finding out basically almost to the row where I know where to pick up to because that row will start dropping a BOMA, Um mm-hmm. and there'll be two or three Bomey um, distance through that, the whole block. So we'll pick the top section with the curved rows and little short triangle bit. We'll do that versus an early pick yeah. The next section comes through, we'll ferment those all differently. On Some will be on really light solids, some will be um, settled, some will be heavy solids, we'll put some in barrel. And all those things start understanding that place itself, how it ripens yeah. is so important, I think. And all those wha- little things we started doing have really sort of snuck into all the other wines.
1: And so you're, you're basically transmitting what's occurring in, in, in the vintage in that place, in that site. Um, and it's not the same as it was last year, and it's not the same it was, you know, the year before, and it may not be the same as it is next year. Um, and that's the thing, is that environment, you're you're sort of in a con- constant conversation between uh, you as a human being within a place, within an environment that's having an impact on how you get to be, I suppose. You know, I mean, you can make decisions and, and certainly, you know, um, do... The environment, y- you do what you want to do, but the environment at the end of the day has the last say, right? Like Mother Nature, if she rains at the end of the vintage or hailstorms come over and wipe out half the crop or, you know, smoke just hangs around the air for, for months and months and months on end. Um, you have to just kind of be at the mercy of that and hope, f- make the most of it. And 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 through that, start to understand what this place is Doing what, what, how it's interacting with you uh, yeah. as a one man, exactly.
0: And I think that's the beautiful thing about uh, what's perceived as a, a great mm-hmm. vintage be it a 65 or you're 14 or 18. Um, those secondary vintages, as we'll just call them for the moment, the more challenging seasons, everything in between them, yeah, the 16s, the 15s, uh, the 12s, the, the gems mm-hmm. out of those vintages are often. You go, oh, wow. Have you look yeah. back at that, uh, like 2012 Chardonnay. Who, who talks about 2012? Like, I love those Chardonnays. They're amazing because I, mean, I, I can't even explain why, but it th- made people think about Chardonnay differently. And there's a couple of absolute belters. like, um, like The Semions from 12, I find them all so green because mm-hmm. everyone treated the se- Sem's coming in the same way. Um, but I look at the Chardonnays, people worked on Lees. They put more things through Mail. White. The adversity in a way people thought about things differently presented you an opportunity to go oh let's do this something i haven't tried before as i think this might do it and i think you know, pushing yourself every year to do something different um so make sure you don't become complacent or well, complacent in the winery um, or recipe winemaking so to speak mm-hmm. where you make everything the same way every year it's sort of no one for me that'd be boring yeah i'm, I'm pretty way too mentally add to uh, keep doing that i'm like yeah sweet us
1: Been there, done that, let's move (coughs) on to... Oh, yeah,
0: like that was great, let's do that again or pull that into that, let's join those two things together as I think this vintage that'll work.
1: Um. Well, I mean, the greatest... uh, The greatest experts are perpetual students, you know, and and it's it's that constant reworking, that refining, um, what you know, questioning what you know, um, playing it as it lies, really. You, You sort of see what's in front of you and, you know, giving it your best shot. And you're going to have a set of challenges, I think, as a as a young winemaker in the future as we move forward with all the um, effects of climate change and the vintages getting warmer and warmer. Um, I mean, not to say that they will continually be warmer and warmer. We've gone through, if you look at five, six, seven, you know, there was three years of drought and then... Uh, 08 was just a, <coughs> a write-off. Oh, I mean, so. Definitely. I
0: think when you actually look back, I mean, we had a similar drought to this in the mid-80s. Like you actually go back and speak to growers. like We've seen patterns like this before, but mm-hmm. we are definitely getting warmer. Um, that's not what I'm trying to challenge. But I think yeah. there is always going to be hot years, there's going to be mild years, and there are going to be wet years. And everything else is going to be warmer, I think, across the board. So we need to grow our grapes differently.
1: So um, you need to start thinking about that. And, and what, what, what are some things that are going through your mind or conversations that you're having that are going to ensure, I guess, the sustainability, the long-term sustainability of, of a region like the Hunter, you know, are we going to still be having these incredible medium-bodied Shrar in, in 50 years' time, or what are we doing?
0: I think so, but I think it's all going to come down to picking decisions. I mean, when you look at the last three years, they were bloody hot, like, I think 47 degrees one day in 18. Like, for me, that's, like, my favourite vintage of the last 20 years. Wow. But I look at that and go, well, we can have hot days. I mean, you got, everyone thinks Burgundy's cold. It's bloody hot in the middle of summer there. Um, vines can, can deal with heat to a certain degree, but it's that prolonged heat with no rainfall that's the issue. So I think the heat will affect some of the more aromatic varieties more than Shra, and that mm-hmm. will be, I don't know, we might lose some, I don't know, slight fragrance and freshness maybe in some of those lighter styles. But I think going forward, it's about getting your site healthy. And I yeah. think healthy soils and healthy vineyards will ride through those challenging um, seasons a lot better um, than the vineyards that aren't looked after as much. And I think I think, probably quite one of the chills Actually, no, quite chatter I think. Old vines don't produce great wines. Great sites produce great wines. And yeah. I think that is more the key than anything. That When we look at our vineyard here, it was conventionally managed for 20 years. We've converted it to organics. I mean, the vine's look as best they've ever looked we're seeing less disease we're putting less sprays out there's cover crops in every row there's no herbicides for almost a year now and everything's looking healthy oh, we're seeing less weeds there's a lot of uh, life out
1: there I mean I'm looking at the cover crop right now it's just a sea of green it's beautiful yeah, oh, it's instead oats, of a, a sea of uh, sort you know, of crisp brown year, yeah
0: this year we've got eight different cover crops in there there's oats rye vetch uh, field peas radish faba beans two types of clover um, so I think all of those things will bring different soil health um and bring some he- more microbes, most importantly more carbon in the soil and hopefully in time i, don't know, I think healthy soil re- needs less water um a lot more organic matter and I think as vines will look healthy and they'll will have i don't know a lot better I don't know basically root structure and I think they'll ride through those more know, really hot spells and not even wetter vintages as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the argument goes that it's difficult to be organic in the hunter, uh, because of the weather, um, and it's humid and so on and so forth, um, but it can be done. Uh, I was talking to Rod Windrum out at Crinklewood, uh, just after the fires for, for an article I was writing, and he said that whilst everybody, well, whilst everybody's yields were going down, he told me that his yields actually increased, uh, this year. Uh, and were it not for the smoke, um, they would have pulled more fruit off and it was looking the best it's ever been. Now, that's anecdotal, but, uh, you know. Yeah,
0: we haven't dropped yield at all across our site here in five years. Everything's been almost identical. Um, We had bird damage one year, which reduced it, but other than that, I think I'd pretty anecdotally say that we've been pushing... More this way, but this is the first vintage we've got where we've almost been organic, so right. almost fully organic, which is great. I'm also a pragmatist in the sense sure. that growing is that I mean, as much as I would love to be certified, if I need to put a spray out to save my crop um, and get it off, I mean, uh, that's the nature of being a farmer and being mentored by a sort of fifth generation farmer is that yeah. there is certain idealism and pragmatism that exists within farming. So Indeed, yeah. I think, yeah, for me, it's about doing everything I can to grow. The greatest best as possible. Well, and Glenn
1: was converting that st- I mean, Tamberlain were taking fruit. So they were, you know, instructing Glenn to, to ease back on the Yeah, so they um Tamburlain have Glenn's sisters portion of the property. Right.
0: Um and then yeah, that's now converted to organic, so it shows it can be done. Um we same thing at Somerset. We reconnected old cut off plows to tractors in the last two years where or well, we've been doing c- sunscreen, cover cropping, mm-hmm. undervine mulching, mounding, cutting off the uh, the last five or six years.
1: Um, Putting all the effort in the vineyard. Yeah. And I think we look
0: at the last five years, even those more challenging scenes, the fruit was clean, it came off beautifully. Um, we didn't, I think we've lost anything from well, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. We've got every bit of fruit off that property. Incredible. Um, and everything looks really amazing. So I'm really happy. But same thing, we didn't make big bodied reds in 15. Sure. Um, we made lighter styles, and that hence presented the possibility to do the new and, and that's like now a, become our biggest seller that came out of a wet vintage
1: right it's like a learned resilience that the vineyard uh adapts to over time it it, it kind of um figures out how best to to be in this in this place in this site you know I, um shashi singh down at uh, avani in the mornington peninsula once told me that or well, she presented the idea that 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 if you think of a plant and the fact that it can't really escape any danger or any kind of um a hardship; it has to be in the spot, and it has to it has to endure. It has to ride it out. So, the stronger it is, in terms of the soil health and 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 the overall plant health, the better able that plant is able to be resilient. You look at these gum trees that are around here; you know, go four or five years without rain, and they're fine. They're still pushing out new growth, and you're going, "What the hell?" Yeah. So we we sort of, I guess. Um, don't give give them enough credit to to be able to you know sort it out get get through it. Provided they've been given the uh, raw materials, they're able to live in a in a decent soil and and be treated properly. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I think was having a conversation with Glenn's son
0: Jason, and he used to work for Lindy's in the vineyards and things. And we were talking about um, cultivation on vine. As I've just bought a new iron vine cultivator, and he was saying he thinks the semi that they used to grow when they used to cut off plough, remound up. The Semyon Use his uh, words, wouldn't shit the bed. Um, uh, in those wetter seasons, the roots went down deeper. They, I don't know, they had a stronger base. Uh, the vine was more de- literally rooted within the soil yeah. to a deeper extent. So, resultantly, the vines were a little bit, I guess, I don't know. They had this place that was, I think, that was stronger within that place. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't know basically spraying and then obviously drip irrigation you've all your feeder roots one those lovely sort of really fine fibrous roots sit right in the at the top of the soil so i think with drip irrigation it's really important to keep chopping down that topsoil and mounting back up because it's forcing the roots and the vines not to be complacent so when the soil does dry out uh, and you've got no you've got no root structure mm-hmm. deeper down so everything's sitting at the top of the soil so for me that's so important thinking about going well vines deep in the soil, to pull that moisture up when it is drier, but still irrigating as well and mulching and doing other things.
1: And all of this takes time, all right? That's the thing that um, a lot of people forget when you're making wine or really doing anything. But you think of, say, say, um, growing a bottle of wine. You've got the vineyard. Say you plant the vineyard, you know, you plant these Gamay cuttings. You haven't made a straight wine off of that. And you probably haven't got yet a return on investment from those plantings yet. No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that takes time, right? Um, It takes time to even know you've got a hunch that the gamay might work out here. Um, And you've seen it. You've seen like a faint glimpse of what you can do with it and you put it in a blend, right? So that it's not not too spotlighted. Um, So with time, you'll start figuring out what that gamay, the potential of that gamay. The thing is, that's like 10, 15, 20 years into the future, mm-hmm. exactly. right? And that, to, to think about that is mind-blowing. Just the, the, the sheer process of actually getting a bottle of wine to be on a table at dinner and the time it takes for that. All the grape growing, let's just call it 12 months of grape growing and graft out in the vineyard. And then a couple of months of winemaking Maybe you leave it in barrel for 6 to 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, whatever. And then you might want to bottle age it because it looks better when it's got a bit more time in bottle. So you leave it for another 6 months or 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. You know, by that stage, you're talking four years. And then it's finally on the table and you crack it open and drink it. It either blows your mind or it doesn't or whatever. But that time element, that time factor. Is something that uh, it blows my mind when I when I actually think about it. When I crack open that bottle of wine, and I think, "Holy shit! This this took such a long time to get in front of me." Now, I don't want to get drunk off of this thing. Like, I want to experience it. I want to enjoy it. See if it has anything to say. If it doesn't have anything to say, well, you know, whatever. But
0: open another bottle.
1: Open another bottle. You know that time element. Do you do you ever give that much thought when you're making wine, growing grapes?
0: I think time is really important. I mean, the decisions you make at pruning is probably the most relevance to time, that the buds that you cut and how you prune, the dead wood, um, you basically, when you look back at those cuts, you'll actually see the history of that vine. And I, if you hit a vine that's hit by a tractor, I know why. um one vine with a tyre, it's split it. So I can I'll always see on that vine that, mistake I made. So it means that vine will have its own sort of story coming up, And then when we prune prune it, you'll have a certain number of buds. So those buds will then produce for next year, Mm -hmm. the following vintage, a certain number of shoots. And in a perfect world, every one of those shoots will produce two bunches of grapes. So Mm -hmm. we'll control the yield. So those decisions made almost six to nine months prior to vintage are affecting the wines you're going to make. And you still don't know what kind of vintage you're going to have. You can yeah. prune the number of buds based on the season you've had before. Is it dry? So then you bring in the season before as well. So the decisions made at pruning are affected by the previous year. Then they're going to affect what you're doing. Then obviously that season changes things. So hopefully you've made the right decisions of <laughs> pruning and whether amount of yield you're going to crop. So I think from there, it's sort of everything's so interrelated. And then those decisions you make in the winery are going to affect how the bottle is made, how it's aged, when it's going to be drunk. So whether it's... So we'll simplify and say say less crushing if we're less extractive wine making. I think generally speaking, will give you a more softer style of wine. So you're not pulling as much tannin out. Um, so I think without getting too complicated um, into this subject, you'll produce something which isn't as geared towards aging right. structurally. Um, then more slightly more extractive will give you a bit more structure and aging. So I think you have to be thinking about time when you're making wine, as the decisions that you're making will affect how the wine is in a glass in six months of bottling or in 20 years of bottling. Mm-hmm. So um, I look at my mine and people say, "Will this age and I'm like, don't, definitely don't age that. I mean it's got no oak um, it's running a slightly higher pH so it has a lower, lower acid so it's softer in your mouth feel. There's a whole bunch of berry, which can give you great longevity but it's very cold fermented so 20 degrees, it's soft and bright um, there's never any added tannin, it's only four months in oak, runs a lower sulphur. So every decision along the way too, that to get that wine into bottle from the picking decisions through the winemaking is designed so that wine is ready to be drunk within the first couple of years. Yeah. So time is so important within wine is that every decision you make affects how the wine is going to be enjoyed and when. So when that wine is going to be enjoyed is essentially the decisions I'm making in the winery. Um, So with other wines that I want to see more weight and complexity like we'll leave them a barrel longer, give them support a bit more new oak, a bit more structure, Mm -hmm. ferment them slightly warmer we'll leave the fruit out a bit longer so you have a bit more natural tannin within the grape. We might crush a little bit of fruit but never too heavily macerated. Um, and then they'll yeah be at barrel age for 14 to 16 months. Um, so all of those decisions around those things are well, we'll think, all think Right. well, then we won't release that for another year. And then, oh, well, it's two and a bit years old before you're even drinking it. Then, well, you shouldn't drink that until it's seven to 10 years old. Um, so, yeah, time is so important it about everything you make. Mind,
1: right? Just, mm. in, man, it takes up. And then, you know, if you, if you think about it, you come along <coughs> at a wine show or something and uh, you taste the wine in 30 seconds and write down your opinion of it and then mm. move on to the next one. Exactly <laughs> right. It's, it's hilarious. Uh. It's something I've never understood. But, uh, you know, these are, the, these are the ways that we conduct things, right or wrong. Speaking of time, this new label of yours uh, is a concept that you've... So you've got a photograph of yourself on the label and it's not as egotistical as one might think. Yeah, well, my, my mates have all called it the Vanity Range. I'm like, thanks, boys. Keeping you grounded, Angus. Exactly, that, that's grounded, what they're for. So. so just explain to me what the concept of, of, of this particular wine is. What is it and, and what's the label represent? So I guess it in some ways it does sort of embody time. So every vintage um, or
0: post-vintage, shall we say, the idea is to take a photograph sort of box brownie style, one by one per um, sort of square orientation, just my face. So hopefully that face will I know, be indicative of the vintage. So if it was challenging, um, I'll look tired and stressed. Like this year I look pretty tired in that, but I think that's the whole point of it was meant to encapsulate what that vintage was. So I guess the photo becomes a time capsule for that year. So this year we had four years of drought, bushfires, smoke date, uh, COVID, Glenn died just after Vintage, so it was a pretty stressful Rough. start to the year. Yeah. Um, and I was literally looking at some old records and in the cellar door, um, at the beginning of COVID just after Vintage, and I picked up a John Lennon album, which is called Walls and Bridges, and it has sort of, that's it's just a great album if you haven't listened to it. Um, I've actually named a wine after one of the songs called Stealing Glass, which will be released later in the year. That's but uh, the idea was like, uh, I think wine is sort of a form of art, so musicians of course considered artists so like why can't we take sort of one of those more artistic concepts and apply it to a wine label and take it in a larger format so i think every year we'll take a new photograph in the same location we've retired that a cooper like my sort of infamous hat um so that will become the constant in the photograph mm-hmm. so you'll be able to keep that sort of single thing that's hanging up in the cellar door and you'll just watch me basically get old over the next 20 years um but the other thing is it's purely reserved for my experimental wines. Right. So, in a larger concept, essentially it's gearing me and forcing me every year to think outside the box and do something different. So, I'll maintain the wines that I do every year and they chop and change slightly based on what the vintage has seen. But hopefully in 20 years' time, I'll still be doing experimental things. I've now forced myself uh, mm. by making this label that I think it would be quite interesting to see the styles of wine all the experiments that I'm doing um, when I'm 50 as opposed to when I'm 30. I could be doing exactly the same thing. Um, Absolutely,
1: man. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's such a cool concept because, again, with time, you'll look back and you'll see the 2020 label, the inaugural, you know, what's the name of the wine?
0: Um, so it's called just the Headcase Experimental range. And then uh, these wines are all named after New Order songs. So every year there'll be a different band as well. So we were listening to New Order in the winery, so that became the... I guess for me, I de- de- deemed that the, the band of vintage. So we've got yeah. Blue Monday, as it seemed like a good idea at the time, um, like every decision does on a Saturday night.
1: Hey, man, back of the napkin type stuff, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, that was a skin contact semi-on we did in a smoke tank year. So hence, yeah, Blue Monday. Love uh, it. We've got Age of Consent, uh, which is a Shiraz Gamay, as the Gamay was too young to be um, sort of vinified and matured by itself. Uh, there's a Bizarre Love Triangle, as there's three different components in the tremina. So one's on skins um, and then Asian in four. One's on skins, then barrel aged. And then one's in tank, then barrel aged. And then also did um, True Faith, another song, but Preservative Free Shiraz. So being reliant on the grapes um, to give it freshness. So they all tie in loosely um, as well. So lots of know, little layers to each wine.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a time capsule of, of time and place. And, and it encapsulates everything that went on in that year and in that time. And and that's what wine I I guess arguably is. When you open up a sixty five Lindy as we've been discussing, you know, <coughs> very rarely of course, but like and I obviously neither of us were around then. Um but you you, you get a glimpse of what happened that
0: year. Exactly right. You know.
1: And you get to sort of be a part of it. That's one of the cool things about opening up an old bottle. Not necessarily tasting all of the developed characters and the tertiary or the secondary characters. It's the fruit that sits behind it all. It's the fruit that's just anchoring this whole thing together to this moment in time that happened Mm. 40, 50, 60 years ago. You can't even fathom it. And you get one shot. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. Dude, uh, I want to switch it over to this section called the extra time where we basically talk a little bit more personal about um, wine growing, relationships to wine uh, or beverages, whatever it is that we're discussing in the moment. And then there's a little Q&A question and answer at the end. Too easy. Just to tie it off. So let's move to that now. So this is the extra time, Angus, and um, we're sitting here drinking out of the... Head case that we were just talking about in the, in the initial interview. And um, this is... What did you say this was? So this is Shiraz Gamay from 2020. So this is Shiraz from Somerset. Yep. And so
0: 50-year-old Shiraz, uh, it's off the sort of north-western block, which mm-hmm. we nicknamed Witch Doctors, um, west middle of the slope. Um, and then it's the second yield of Gamay we've got off here. So they're both co-fermented.
1: Together. Yep.
0: Wow. Uh, 50-50? No, so it's 80% Shiraz and 20% Gamay. 10% of the ferment, so half the Gamay is left as whole bunches. Then everything else is purely distemmed on top.
1: This is a 2020? Yep. Holy shit. This is phenomenal. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Aromatics on that.
0: Uh... Wow. Me? It's bright, it's fresh, it's wow. bunchy. I mean... I like describing smoke taint in lesser amounts. It's like putting a cloth just slightly over it. Um, when you see it bad, I'll show you a barrel of smoke taint after we have a chat. Yeah. And you'll see it. It's like walking up and looking at the side of the shed, which is Colour Bond uh, steel. Yeah. Um, and it's literally like having a wet tea towel sitting on top of it. You're like trying to smell this amazing glass of wine through a damp cloth. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, I know, But I look at that and I think there's still bright red fruit, it's it crunchy.
1: Yeah, it's a real core there. I mean, it's, it's just so—it's pretty. It's really pretty. It's a pretty smelling wine, and if you think about the context of where it comes from, that is almost the polar opposite of what I would have anticipated. I mean, you know, fire, smoke, mm. drought, and this is ener- This has got energy. It, there's brilliance in there. Like it's thanks, mate. It's um, it's so pretty. So pretty.
0: I think that's the opportunity, as I was saying before, it, you know, forcing me to really think about things uh, really differently. Um, yeah, I think it's 12.5% alcohol that's unfined, unfiltered. It's aged with no sulphur. So they're trying to give the wine as much on, on fine leaves. So... Um, sort of We leave the bottom sort of I don't know, 20 litres in the barrel, so the barrel spikes on a like a screw. So uh-huh. you can adjust it so you leave all the leaves behind and you just get really clean juice so we don't have to filter. And also means I don't have to rack it multiple times to find it. Right. So you just let it settle in the barrel. I just leave the leaves behind and we just rack clear juice straight in a bottle. So it means the wine isn't being moved as much. So I guess in a sense, I guess it's being handled in a more sort of reductive manner, but it's yeah. not trying to be reductive in it, in sort of that... That fashion of winemaking.
1: Well, it doesn't. It doesn't smell that reductive. I mean, you've only just cracked it open. I'd like to see it. You know, in sort of an hour or so. It. it that.
0: The, the. The. No, I don't think the wine is reductive. It's more just that trying to not move it as much and be as gentle yeah. as possible to that wine. And in terms of its winemaking, like I sort of have a philosophy in the winery that well, not firstly nothing is ever blended. So when that winery is full, there's probably a hundred five hundred liter punchers in there. Wow. Everyone is racked barrel to barrel. Nothing's ever blended until it goes to bottle, because that gives Ford the ability to find those little moments of brilliance. As every one of those barrels is from a different tree, has a different grain from different forests, and they speak different language. And sometimes you hit a sweet spot. Uh, so if, I mean, I look at the Chardonnay barrels in there. There's one Chardonnay barrel that um, I think it's three years old now, but it's never made had like a moment of brilliance. And I go, that's probably the barrel I'm going to get rid of first. And then the two next to it, I've got. One of those barrels and made single barrels two years in a row. And I go, there's something in that barrel. Yeah. And I put different blocks into it. So it's not like it's from that block and barrel together. There's um, something amazing that exists within that little thing. And I think those moments of brilliance by not blending things together, letting the wine and the site speak. And I know if you take barrel site as opposed to site as well. So I think it's kind of fun and
1: interesting. Is that what it gets you excited when, you, when, when you're making wine, when, you, when you're approaching a vintage or you're approaching a bottling or whatever it is, like w- what is it that's getting you excited for those things? Like, I mean, just speaking to that, you got pretty wide-eyed. And yeah, I love the idea of like going through and there's always like one thing I sort of
0: find most discomfort in is about the month or six weeks post-harvest where the wine's just are still going through that sort of post-fermentation haze and you have no idea, yeah, like, yeah. did I make the right decision or have I just fucked everything up? Like, um, all those sort of decisions made it in the spur of the moment when you've got, I don't know, five tonnes of fruit in. coming in, you've been up since three o'clock in the morning because you've been cleaning the wine and you're then going out to pick and I pick all our blocks. Yeah. Um, hence the ability to be out, go pick, then we come back and crush. So the days are so long. So you're making decisions when you're pretty wired and... Mm-hmm. Um, always with too many brownies under your belt, um, <laughs> but yeah, you sort of look at it, and go, "Hope I did make the decisions." And you, I lose sleep over wines, going, "All right, did, did we, did we, do that right?" Um,
1: so, what's the most joyful thing when people come to your cellar door here on Gillard's Road? Like, you know, they get to taste the wines, they get to look out over at the vineyard and stuff like that. Is it the feedback? Do you do you look forward to that or? I think things, so, I like have a glass of wine and sort of
0: just some more subtle things, not people telling you that. that they like your wine but it's seen them get a little smile yeah it's that little moment where they go uh there'll be a couple where you can't make wine for everyone and you have to acknowledge that at some point sure. um so they'll try a couple of it, that's nice it's nice and then you'll I don't sure. know go from white to red and the first red is always the nouveau and they go oh well what's that and they go it's oh, kind of a bit different and then we'll pour them something different after that and they go oh that's nice or it might be the rose first wine of the day yeah um so i think the smile that when yeah, just the little subtleties
1: yeah they're not it's not as overt that because some people i guess they, they get a little bit nervous it's wine tasting right you know it's full of wank and, and and posturing and all that sort of stuff and some people get a little bit conscious uh of it all and and, res- and be a little bit more reserved in their reactions but yeah that little grin or maybe their eyebrow raises or something like that yeah definitely. it's definitely yeah, it's a little wins yeah yeah, it must be a, a cool thing. I mean, it's that whole crea- creative um, process, right? I mean, that's essentially what wine is. It's a, it is a creative process. I mean, yes, it's it's hard yakka out in the vineyard, late nights, all these sorts of things. But ultimately, you're creating something in the world that didn't exist before you came along.
0: No, I look at wine
1: very much sort
0: of like architecture. And obviously, that's... I think at uni, you don't get taught I don't know, how to design a house, but what you get taught is a process of how to design. And I think that's the only thing you need to take out of two degrees in architecture is that process of how to design. Right. And I think I'll take that same level of process of almost like conceptualization coming into vintage, have ideas, but same thing as building a house. Sometimes you, just, you can't build it that way. Yeah. So okay. you can't get those materials and uh, you wanted to build it out of I don't know, something. And then the vintage gives you something else. So I was like, I want to make first year. I was like, I want to make this. Then we had a wet year. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to make that. And if I try and make that out of that, what, those grapes, it's going to look so wrong and out of place. So I think, yeah, it's bit that ability to work, but within that concept as well. So yeah, yeah it's like dealing with council, basically. <laughs> so but, but Mother Nature says not council. So I want to do this. No, you're not doing that, mate. So <laughs>
1: what do you, Where do you think intentions come into play? You know, um, your intentions to produce something good or... It's some I, I feel like some people uh, set out to make something. With, let's just take wine for example. That's the subject we're talking, um, and 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 they have an intention to make, say, a, a natural wine or preservative free wine, or you know, um, or a big blockbuster wine, right? And then the vintage, the season, whatever, completely flies in the face of that intention. Um and 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 they are left having to do something else or reconsider or maybe they just force their way through sheer blooded bloody-mindedly and uh, and and at the end of the day that that wine perhaps isn't as good as it, it could have been, been. Yeah.
0: yeah so and I think that's
1: the important thing is being reactive and not
0: dogmatic in your approach to viticulture and winemaking so if the harvest is saying we're going to have ten days of rain but your Shiraz is only at 12 Bama. It's like, well, all right, so what are we going to do? Do we leave it out, let it ride through that just in the sake of a flavor profile, but on the backside of that, knowing that it could take two weeks, it could rain again once there's humidity in the air. So you sort of make decisions around that. We're going, oh, hold on, we've got red fruits here. We've got really nice natural acidity. Let's pull it in now. We won't have to acidify it. It's bright, fresh, crunchy. Let's do that with this year, this vintage, as opposed to... Trying to make a more serious red. Yeah. But other blocks, you won't have that decision. They might be at 11 by main green and going, we've got to ride it. So let's put a, another copper out, also copper sulphur out, or whatever you have to do for that block. Uh, go through and bunch thin post rainfall. Might have reduced yields, but we'll give that block the best, or the best I don't know, chance or best hope to to ride through to produce something. But it's again just not being dogmatic. I think it's that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to. Strong
1: um, positions, weekly held type thing. Just go with the flow. Yeah, go with the flow. <laughs> when h- How would you get someone excited about wine? You know, um, we all have those moments, uh, whether or not we're at the dinner table with friends and tolerable family members or, you know, you're out to dinner um, at a restaurant and you have a wine moment, you get all excited about it, and we we, we we search for them. Well, I search for them anyway. I, I constantly, I think, I think arguably, eating and drinking is one of the greatest things you could possibly do with your time. Most definitely. Um, but you know, for those people that don't necessarily uh, have never had that moment, or have never had it presented in that particular way, like it always takes somebody or some moment to present the eating and the drinking as mm. more than just eating and drinking. I was
0: brought up in a wine family, so for me. My mum loved cooking; she was an amazing cook. Mm. Dad then got into cooking, started a restaurant in his spare time. Like that's how sort of crazy, sort of like, oh, let, let's do that. Let's start I a vineyard. Uh, like that, hence the name headcase. Like my family are fucking batshit crazy, <laughs> and I love it. Um, and it's like, if you want to do something, go do it. So I think I was brought up in a family that always loved food and wine. Conversation was always around having a glass of wine yeah. and cooking. So kind of presenting that level is like people who I think. I don't know. When I share time with people, there's most of those experiences are done around food and wine. So hopefully yeah. that level of enthusiasm come, comes out quite quickly. You, well, you do those dinners,
1: you know, and yeah. those, those events that we used to before fucking COVID. But, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think presenting food and wine in a fun manner. Yeah. Um, in a less pretentious environment because wine can be seen all classically has such a reputation the way it was presented for such a long period of time yeah. in sort of aristocracy
1: and... Um, I don't know, being sort of class. It's coded behind these, these you know, words that just turn you off a little bit. Like even even when I say tannin, I just get like a little bit, ugh, oh. feels Where that feels... Like it, well, I
0: might call that a polyphenolic compound. And then you're going, that's science. <laughs> uh, scientific more background as opposed to tannin. You go, well, does that make your mouth dry, mate? It's like, yeah, yeah. that's tannin. It's yeah. coming from wine or oak and I don't know explaining people why things taste that way I always find really interesting. Um, yeah, true. But I think... Yeah, having fun. It's like, don't like that. Let's open something else. Let's have a glass of wine. Let's let's find something you like. And I think, for me, it's I don't know. It's it's all about just going. Oh, you don't like that? Don't worry about it. I'm not going to force you to drink that. Let's, That's right.
1: Let's have a taste. Um, it's it's just cracking a series of bottles of wine, and and just letting them have at it. You know, uh, Christmas last year with my family, I think I brought like a whole case, just twelve different bottles of wine. And you know, there's only six of us or something. Oh, it Should be hard to get through. So, <laughs> yeah, but like. They were all sort of looking at me like, you're, you're insane. Like, we, we're not going to get through this. And it's like, well, that's not the point. The point is that they're all open at the same time. It doesn't matter which order you do them in. Uh, if you want to drink it or don't want to drink it, I don't care. Like, it's Christmas time. Let's just have some fun. You know, have some fun. Exactly. And, you know, um, you, 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 your brother comes up to you and goes, that's really nice. What? what like, tell me a little bit about that. And you that's the conversation. That's, that's, there you, you go. just need
0: that little point of entry, that little moment where they go, oh, yeah, that's what. I, I, I kind of get it. And then occasionally you'll give them that one bottle. They go, okay, yeah, I'll have – can you get me six bottles of that, please? Yeah. Um,
1: I, I'm going to drink that. And that's a cool thing because that happens with your wine.
0: Actually, someone came to the cellar door last weekend and said that. He said, I didn't drink uh, red wine. Wow. I didn't like how rich it was. And then but until I had your Tempranillo, and in my head I'm thinking – it's the Tempani is the richest wine I make. This conversation <laughs> is really strange. You know, I'm going, all right. But he goes, no, I just, he'd agree with me. I just had that wow moment. I went, oh, I really, really like that. And then he walks away with like pretty much every bottle of red wine we make because he's yeah. like, oh, I, lo- I kind of like red wine now. I'm like, this is fantastic.
1: On the sliding scale of richness, he found the, I guess, the lighter of the style of richness. But, you know, the way you make your wines, they are on that edgier side. So... Yeah, I said it's very funny, but I'm like, if that works for you, I might. That's amazing, and that's
0: that's exactly what we wanted.
1: Yeah, and then he gets to crack that open in front of uh, friends, and like, oh, you know, I met the guy in the cellar door the other day, and check this out. This is really cool, and that's got to be the cool thing. I mean, uh, for me, I think that must be unbelievably cool. Where you, the thing that you created, that exists because you did it, is now giving joy. ...to other people and then that kind of follows on ad infinitum... ...compounds on itself to, you know... Yeah, it's quite funny to think
0: that... ...I know you sell one to your distributor... ...to most mine are good friends... um, ...and they put them in places often... ...you, you don't know where they go. And ...Joe Blow uh, from somewhere in Northern Territory... ...goes into a bottle shop and... Yeah. ...picks up a bottle of rosé and goes... ...oh, that's pretty great, oh, I might come back and buy a case that's so there's no way I ever would have thought that I could be giving pleasure in different parts of Australia, let alone in other parts of the world. Those sort of things sort of, sort of blows my mind a bit.
1: Has uh, the last couple of months with COVID and everything, that's been pretty rough. That's been pretty tough just in terms of all of a sudden your supply lines are dried up, right? Like all your restaurants, bars, et cetera, your wholesale line. Yeah, You had to shut definitely. the door. Yeah, when our accommodation was closed, so perhaps most forms of... Uh,
0: Business were completely closed, but we, um, sort of, we tried to sort of rally behind our members and help them rally us. So we did some really amazing specials for them. Uh, a lot of people were out of work. Um, everyone needs a drink to get through the, the <laughs> downtime. So I guess we're in a good industry for <laughs> for recession. But
1: saving a lot of people.
0: Um, I think yeah, we had it was really good community following um, for us, and I think we tried to look at things in a positive manner.
1: Yeah. Um, and now it's starting to to sort of wind back up a little bit, but you know, it, it, did you did you find that the relationships or the connections you had with um, your members or your suppliers, more to the point, and the restaurants that you sell to, did they uh, strengthen or did they weaken? Like, how did that all play out, do you think?
0: No, I think that there was definitely a lot of strengthening with obviously certain people that you have really good relationships with. So, I mean, communication became key. It's like the people who ordered wine just for shutdowns and they're going, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pay for that. Um, do you, like, oh, we want to return the stock I'm like no don't worry about it Like, I'm not going to pa- force you to pay shipping when you don't have any money you can hold the stock till post COVID and we can deal with it then and people are now reordering and fixing up that invoice which is four months old but it's it, I think that's great it's, like it's more about working with each other knowing that basically we're going to come out the other side and there's going to be closures for restaurants who are friends and for, and people are going to be out of work um, so I think yeah thinking about things in a sort of broader sense, trying to make sure that we all sort of work together to make sure when we came out of this, we came out of it together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I look at it like this giant accelerator, like someone's just, um, there's tinder sticks everywhere and piles of wood and then someone's just poured gasoline and struck a match and the whole world is just sped up instantaneously together, synchronised uh, as well. That's the, the, the oddest thing for me is just watching it play out in all parts of the world, sharing a similar experience of just this shit show called COVID-19, which has basically disrupted all of our lives. Um, but then the people with the ideas, the people with the, the 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 new ways of thinking, they've all had that kick up the butt to do those things and just implement them, you know. Oh, most definitely. I think
0: the idea, of, I, don't know, I think middle of COVID, I was meant to be in the UK um, doing wine masterclass with 12 other Aussie winemakers. I was going to walk the, the first leg of the Camino. I was meant to go see my mum in New Zealand for my 30th birthday. All of that stopped. So I had sort of this moment in time where we got, you no. Know, well, let's get the vineyard seeded, which, which we're going to do anyway. But I actually had like, a day off for the first time like in six years. Like <laughs> It was like, oh, this is what it feels like to have a moment to actually think. And I think that label has come out of COVID to sort of touch on that it's like that ability to you know, i think as a quite creative person um ability to have a little bit of time to sort of you know, catch up on you know, six years of lost sleep and uh working too much i think yeah i think looking at covid in a different it's been yeah. it's been really tough but the ability to slow down i think yeah i think a lot of people might for, might have, will forget that but
1: hopefully not
0: uh, I think yeah, this is might be the only time in our lives that we all got to slow down for a moment and yeah. take a deep breath. Um, we still work full time, but that ability to just take a little bit of a deep breath in small business, I think was quite special. Um, yeah, looking back on that, I think it'll be quite major. We'll it'll be quite interesting period that we'll look back on in time um, when things normalise, or maybe they won't ever. Um, back to the same degree that it was. Yeah, but I think yeah. There'll be people who didn't make the most of COVID, but I think yeah, the
1: the ones know. that did really did start to get yeah. get some shit done, and
0: definitely. Like I did the opposite at the start of COVID. I deleted every, every single streaming service I have, uh, and just went all right, I'm going to be really productive. I'm going to use this time to you know, I not know, go outside, be in the gardens, the grounds. It's just autumn. It's my favourite time of it's year. Beautiful, isn't it? Um, obviously, we're sitting in winter now, but like, yeah, let's I don't know embrace this sort of chance i said the first week was obviously doom and gloom and i'm going fuck i've got so many pills like and all of that business side comes through but we figured out ways to deal with that and then we move forward like yeah this is such an amazing opportunity everyone's going why are you being no nonchalant about this like no don't get wrong i'm really stressed um (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is just a veil man it's pretty goddamn thin well i I said it's like let's just when are we going to get this chance to spend with time sorry with this time to spend with friends and family my brother moved back from Byron Bay he was laid off his job he came and lived with me like I haven't s- spent that much time with him for years i like, I said well yeah let's
1: just work in the gardens and grounds and
0: relax We'll cook food and drink lots of nice wine and what's a cellar for
1: accentuate the positive 100% yeah no it's 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 been a remarkable uh time but l- wines like this coming out of years like this they're the glimmers of hope that keep you going right you know yeah, I think yeah.
0: Looking back at everything we've done this year, I'm like, oh, I, I think it's like, I think we made the right decisions now. Um, but yeah, I think it's yeah, it's been fun. So I'm, I'm happy. I'll oh, be happy, happy to see the backside of it nonetheless. But oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, look, there's no
1: guarantees. Twenty twenty one is going to be even any any better, well, but it could be much worse. Probably, <laughs> but I mean, it's I'm, I'm not imagine. I'm not tempting
0: a Mother Nature for a worse set of uh, worse plates. So
1: I reckon. I think we're we're done with. Uh, with the horror show that that was, uh, bushfires and everything like that, and the drought, you know, the drought's kind of not—it's not broken officially, but but we've certainly got a decent set of rain over the last few years, right? Uh, sorry, we've certainly got a decent set of rain over the last few months.
0: Yeah, we got four hundred mils almost, I think, after post post vintage. Um, well, one we didn't get our last block of fruit off. It just came down. I think we got like two hundred and fifty mils of rain in like tw- twenty-four hours. It's just like not even yep, mad. Um. You know what? Whatever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, it hasn't rained like that for f- five years. I think, yeah, I can i can lose five tons of grapes if we, for the better sake of all
1: our older dry-grown vineyards. So. For sure. Dude, I want to uh, end the interview with a and A. I I just want to say thank you so much for spending this afternoon chatting uh, about wine and everything like that. I know you've had a pretty uh, mad dash from Sydney and moving house and that sort of stuff. So it's really cool, man, to, you to, glass to catch wine. up. Have a glass uh, of wine. Yeah, slow down and... So let's finish on a quick Q&A. I fire these off to all my guests at the end of the podcast. Just all right. to I love it. It's, some of it's related to wine. Most of it's not, to be perfectly honest. So let's hit with the first one. What do you least love about wine?
0: Hmm. Oh, I never not really thought about that. What do I least love about wine? <laughs> Maybe the pretentiousness of it. Um, I think when I look at all my wines I think I'm trying to make wine really fun and accessible so I think yeah the idea that I don't know certain other alcohol beverages have I don't know they're universally accepted it I love the fact that if wine was just seen as like another drink where it can be fun you can have it uh, I think yeah
1: Pretentiousness yeah it's a, it's a it does, um, it has a lot to answer for, the snobbishness for sure.
0: Oh, I definitely, I, I see it when people come to the cellar door, like I saw this review of your wine in a book, I, wanted to, I want that, and I, I was like, oh sorry, so we've sold out of that, um, he's like, oh okay, no worries then, and then they walk out of the cellar door and I'm like, hey, you know, the other wines aren't we better. We have other wines. <laughs> um, but it's like, cause some person said that your wine is great, and I go, that to me is not trusting your own palate, maybe that's part of it too, that people don't trust their own palates, and I think... The beauty of wine is that people, like almost all wine should be served blind. It's like, tell me what you think. Yeah. Forget the label, um, which exactly. I love Label labels as a creative outlet as well. No doubt. Um, but yeah, just taste the wine for what it is. If you like it, you like it, get stuck in. If you don't like it... There's, there's plenty more bottles. I make 25 wines. I'm sure you like <laughs> something.
1: <laughs> so what do you most love about wine? Uh,
0: the conversation, the time with people. It's the sharing. Um, I love the creative process. That's probably second, but... And the, the memories that are shared with people. Like, I look at all most of my favorite memories are always um, shared with someone or family, sitting around a table having a discussion, food and wine. The place could be anywhere, but it's what happens around that glass that's the most important.
1: Awesome. Uh, hanging out in your cellar door just before, you've got a pretty gnarly record collection there, and a yeah. nice couple of Bose speakers. Which would have a bit of ground, I think, if you turn them up nice. Definitely.
0: The right one, I think, is pretty much blind,
1: so it might need a new subwoofer in it. But you're a man of music, as you were mentioning before, naming your your wines after New Order, this vintage. So think of a favourite album or a piece of music and uh, tell me what it is and what do you most love about it. Album would probably, be, or band, or
0: should I say, would be War and Drugs. Um, they've got two amazing albums, Lost in the Dream and A Deeper Understanding. they got some older music as well, which is also great. But Lost in the Dream, it's sort of, I don't know, for me, I love long songs getting lost in them. And they have this amazing ability to have basically make an album with like 10 songs that are all about 6 to 7 to 8 to 9 minutes long. And... And I love the I don't know, process of crescendo in music, sort of how things build up. And, and I, for me, they have this really nice moment within the songs that uh, they're sort of nostalgic. Like they almost sound like elements of the 60s, and sorry, the 70s and 80s rock, Springsteen, that's what I grew up with. Yeah. But then they have this sort of more, it's almost going like to put more contemporary and modern sort of twist to the music. And for me, it's sort of I know, nostalgic, but also I know rides into more, of my I guess, more... Um, Alternative sort of um, styles of music, which I love as well.
1: Lost in the dream, or just the silence of a moment? It's always hard to tell. Down in the way, they cut it open and they sold it. Have you ever heard of Echoes by Big Floyd? Yes. 15 minutes of some of the greatest music ever. Yeah. So, it's like,
0: Dad, there's a great album by the Moody Blues. Um, That's quite a thing. In Search of the Lost Chord. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to listen to it. It's got a song called Timothy Leary, which you know, it, for those who don't know is the guy who invented um, LSD. And it's yeah. like it's an amazing, uh, most eclectic album. You can almost hear it goes through like 15 different genres. They're all multi instrumentalists, play everything themselves. It's like 1968. Like those songs are amazing, and it's almost like there is only one song. Yeah. The, the album, the album is a song, and I think that's why yeah. I, know I love albums because. Oh, sorry, because I know, people listen to songs most nowadays or playlists and you press play on Spotify and then it goes to artist radio. I yeah, love yeah. that music is created as a piece that was designed to be listened to in a certain way. So yeah. I think I know, you probably apply that concept to wine is that the wine was made in a certain way and designed to be drunk in a, in a certain time and
1: place. No doubt, no doubt. Imagine that you're a new addition to a box of crayons. What colour would you be and why? Black. Black. Yeah.
0: Why? I just love black. black. Um, for me it's practical. Okay. And like I have basically always had black jeans, black shirt, black jacket. It's just I love the practicality practicality of black.
1: Um, yeah. yeah. Nice. Batman, Superman, or Spider Man?
0: Well how to be Batman. I was just my sermon on black clothes just <laughs> then. <so>. <laughs> indeed, indeed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the first person to say Batman. Everyone else has said Spider Man so far. It's interesting.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't need superpowers So.
1: Yeah, I, I hear that Okay, last question If you were ever in a position to recreate The T-Rex The Tyrannosaurus Rex Would you do it?
0: Would I recreate A carnivorous monster Designed to kill things? Probably not <laughs> I, mean, I think they've already made three movies about that And it didn't end well for anyone So um, I think, yeah,
1: I think we can leave the T-Rex buried. You're too altruistic. I like it. Okay, cool. Well, that's it. No T-Rex. Damn. Uh, Angus, thanks so much, man, for spending this afternoon with me. Thanks for sharing some wine. My absolute pleasure. And some beer too. Some Peroni. Wow. Um, Dude, awesome. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers.
1: All right. Episode 12. Done. What did you think? Did you enjoy it? Did you gain any knowledge? Did you get any more insight? Did you acquire any wisdom? Let me know, leave a comment if you're using Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Otherwise, you can tweet me on Twitter or tag me on Insta at Fermenting Place or simply say hello and give me a guest suggestion via email, hello at FermentingPlace.com. Okay, that's enough again from me for now. Take care out there, but don't forget to eat, drink and be merry and I'll speak with you next time on the Fermenting Place podcast.